like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish people. Some of those, in fact, most of those had become believers, but some of those were not yet believers. Chapter 10 and verse 33 says that they were going through affliction and reproach, and so some of them, because of that suffering, were looking back over their shoulder back at Judaism. And so the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is greater than everyone and everything in the Old Testament. The theme of the book of Hebrews is that the new covenant in Jesus' blood is greater than the old covenant in animal blood. And the way that you enter into this new covenant relationship with God is through faith. And I think that's why Hebrews chapter 11 is written to show these people that faith is nothing new. Faith is not some new requirement by God. All the people who came to God in the Old Testament were people of faith. In fact, he really begins this chapter in chapter 10 and verse 38 by quoting from the Old Testament in Habakkuk 2.4 and he says, the just shall live by faith. And then he gives example after example of Old Testament individuals who live by faith. We see Abel and Enoch Noah and Abraham, Sarah and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. And last time we began to look at Moses in verse 23. And Moses is, is an important example of faith for a couple reasons. Number one, he was the lawgiver. God chose to give the law through Moses. And Judaism at this time was a totally legalistic system. It had become a system of works. And so for the Jew, the law held the place of centrality. In fact, addressing the Jews in Romans chapter 2 and verse 23, Paul says, you who boast in the law. And so they, because they boasted in the law and because Moses was the lawgiver, they held Moses up in high esteem. He was their chief legalist. He was their prime example of works. In fact, he was probably the highest esteemed individual in Jewish minds. He was their hero. Jesus called him in John 5:45, "Moses, in whom you have set your hope." To the blind man who had been healed by Jesus, the Pharisees said in John 9:28, "You are his disciple, meaning Jesus, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We are disciples of the lawgiver Moses, that great man of works. And so the writer of Hebrews comes along here in Hebrews chapter 11, and he points out that Moses was a man of faith. And so Moses is an important example because he shows us that even the lawgiver was a man of faith. Second reason he's an important example of faith is because verse 25 tells us he suffered affliction with the people of God. And verse 26 tells us he suffered the reproach of Christ by faith. And that's what these Jewish people needed to do. Moses took a stand for God. He chose the affliction and the suffering and the reproach and he endured it by faith. And so he's an important example to them of somebody who suffered and endured by faith. Now, how is Moses an example of faith? Well, he overcame 
three areas of fear, and I want to point those out this morning. I think there are three areas that every one of us has to overcome in our lives. The first is in your bulletin. It's the threats of the king. Notice verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Now Moses grew up in the palace of Egypt. And when he was approaching the age of 40, he had a decision to make. He had a choice to make. And it's the kind of choice that every one of us really has to make. In fact, people from the very beginning of time up till now and in the future have to make this very same decision that Moses made. In fact, later Moses would say in Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Joshua in Joshua 24, 15 said, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah stood on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18.21 and he said to the people of Israel, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God... Follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And you are still facing that same decision today. Because Jesus said to each one of us in Mark 8.34, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for My sake in the Gospels shall save it. Moses faced a choice. He had a decision to make. He had to choose between the present world with a physical king and the future world with an invisible king. He had to choose between being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and being called the child of God. He had to choose between the pleasures of sin for a season and suffering affliction for a season. He had to choose between the treasures in Egypt and the reward of God. He had to choose between the fame of Egypt and the reproach of Christ. And what did he choose? He chose to give up the prestige and the pleasures and the treasures. And he chose rather to suffer affliction and the reproach of Christ as he looked to the eternal reward and to the invisible God. Does that sound like a strange choice? It isn't. Peter Cameron Scott was a gifted young singer whose dream was to be an opera star. He was on the steps of an opera, opera house. It wasn't country music. It was opera house. He was on the steps of an opera house about to answer an ad for chorus singers when he faced the crucial decision of his life. As Ruth Tucker in her book From Jerusalem to Iranian Yaha says, would he seek a life of self-glory and applause under the spotlight of the entertainment world? 
Or would he dedicate his life to God's service no matter how humble and obscure the circumstances? It was a moment of crisis in the young man's life, but the decision was final. He chose to serve God. Scott graduated from the New York Missionary Training College and then sailed for Africa in 1890. His brother soon joined him, but quickly died from the harsh conditions. And Peter Scott built his brother's coffin and dug his brother's grave by himself. Soon his own health was broken and he went back to England where his hope was renewed as he read the inscription on David Livingston's grave in Westminster Abbey. It says simply this, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Scott went to America and recruited others to join him in the cause of reaching Africa with the gospel. And with seven others, including his own sister, he returned to Africa in October 1895. In his first year's report, four stations had been opened, educational and medical programs had been set up, and the missionaries were making progress in learning the languages. But shortly after this optimistic report, Scott fell ill and died at age 29, just 14 months after returning to Africa. Soon afterwards, several other workers died and others had to give up for health reasons. And by the summer of 1899, only one missionary remained on the field. The area was known by the natives as the white man's graveyard. More missionaries had died than people became Christians during those early years. But other missionaries, hearing the story, came to Africa, packing their belongings in coffins. And what began with one young man's choice to follow the call of God developed into what we know today as Africa Inland Mission. Let me tell you something. Whenever you attempt to follow God's path for your life, you will face opposition. Whenever you attempt to follow God's path for your life, someone will get angry at you. Moses encountered the wrath of the king. And Proverbs 19.12 says, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion. That's pretty intimidating. In Moses' case, it was Pharaoh. In your case, it may be a family member. It may be an employer. It may be a professor at the university. It may be a friend. It may be your spouse. But let me tell you something. Only faith can overcome that fear. And how does faith do it? Verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith gave the future things a present reality for Moses. Faith allowed him to see the unseen. He could suffer affliction and reproach in the present because the future reward was a reality to him by faith. He didn't fear the earthly king because he could see the heavenly king by faith. And so the first fear he overcame was the threats of the king. Then there's a second fear he had to overcome. 
And that's the excuses of Moses. Look at the rest of verse 27. It says, For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now there's intended irony in that statement. How do you see the one who can't be seen? Well, you do it by faith. And where's the first place that Moses saw the one who is unseen? Well, that was at the burning bush. Let me just set the scene for you. When Moses was approaching the age of 40, he went out to see how his brothers, the children of Israel, were doing. And the Bible says he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he was so upset by it that he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And Acts chapter 7 and verse 25 tells us when he did this, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. He assumed when he killed this Egyptian that his Israelite brothers were going to anoint him the deliverer. Obviously, he was ready to lead Israel. Obviously, he was ready to be their deliverer and take them out of Egypt. And I'm sure he thought he was qualified. He had been trained in Egypt. He had been groomed to be a leader. He had taken all of the leadership courses. He had an education. He could show them his degree. He was probably thinking, surely Israel, this group of slaves, will fall in line behind me. Did it work? No. You see, Moses thought he was ready, but God didn't. And the next day, Moses went out and saw two Hebrews fighting and he tried to reconcile them. And one said to him, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And Moses left Egypt, went to Midian, got married, had a couple of sons, became a shepherd, settled down, and spent 40 years there. 40 years for God to break Moses. Forty years for God to humble Moses. And after 40 years, God comes to Moses and speaks to him in the burning bush. Now God is ready. Is Moses ready? No. Let me have you take your Bible and go back to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 gives us the account of the burning bush. <clears throat> Notice verse 6. God said, I am the God of your father. Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, for I am aware of their sufferings. Verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Verse 9, and, and now I behold the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. I've heard their cry. I know their affliction. I have come down to deliver them. And Moses is probably saying, Amen, all right, get them, God. And then verse 10, Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I? 
Does that sound like you? God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do great and mighty things. I'm going to do things that you've never seen before. Go, God! But I want to use you. Wait a minute. Time out. Hold it. God, do a great work. But don't use me. You know, we've got a lot of excuses why we can't be used by God. And what I like about Moses is he had a lot of excuses too. I see at least five excuses that he gives here. The first excuse is in verse 11. He says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In other words, I'm nobody. This is a job for somebody important, not me. And notice God's answer to that excuse in verse 12. And God said, Certainly I will be with you. You see, who you are doesn't really matter because God is going to be with you. You ever given that excuse? God, I'm nobody. I, I, I can't do this. Who am I to be used by you? And God says, it's okay. You're right, you are nobody. But I'm somebody. And I'm going to be with you. And then he gives excuse number two. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Let's just say I do go to the people of Israel, and I say to them, God sent me. They're going to ask me, What's his name? What am I going to tell them? And God's answer is beautiful. His answer in verse 14, Tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And then he comes up with excuse number three. And that's in chapter 4 and verse 1. And there he says, what if they won't believe me? Or what if they won't listen to me? What if they say, we don't think the Lord has appeared to you? And God gives his answer in verses 2 to 9 of chapter 4. He says to Moses, what's that in your hand? And he says, a staff. And God says, well, throw it on the ground. So he throws it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And Moses fled. I like that, because I flee too. He fled. And God said, now grab him by the tail. And he grabs him by the tail. And he becomes the staff again. And God says, and if they don't buy that, put your hand in your shirt. Puts his hand in his shirt and pulls it out, and it's leprous. Now put your hand back in your shirt. He puts his hand back in his shirt and it comes out and it's restored. And he says, if they won't buy that, then go to the Nile and take some water out of the Nile and drop the water on the dry ground and it'll turn to blood. What if they won't believe me? I'm going to show them that I'm with you. And then excuse number four, I like this one. Look at verse 10. This is a def desperate excuse. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, not in the past, not recently, and I haven't gotten any more eloquent since we've been talking together. 
I am slow of speech, and literally, I have a thick tongue. I have a thick tongue, God. I, I can't talk. And God's answer, you can read in verses 11 and 12, God says, who made your tongue? Oh, yeah. God made my tongue. And God says, well, if I made your mouth, then don't you think I can teach it what to say? Now go. Moses has one more excuse. Chapter 4 and verse 13. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. Please, Lord, send somebody else, anybody else, but me. You say, you know what? It really sounded like Moses had an inferiority complex. I mean, why would the Lord pick this guy? Why didn't at this point the Lord just say, all right, I'm going to pick somebody else? And I think the answer lies in the fact if you look carefully at Scripture, you will find that the person God is often looking for is the person who thinks they're inadequate. Did you get that? In fact, I'd go beyond that. The person God always chooses is the person who thinks he or she is inadequate. In Judges 6, 11-16, God came to Gideon and said, Go deliver Israel from Midian. Remember what Gideon said? He said, My family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my family. My family is the least family in the whole tribe and I'm the youngest. I'm the least likely guy to be chosen. Pick somebody else. God came to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, 4-8. He said, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah said, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a youth. I'm too young. I'm in the youth group. Surely you're going to pick an adult, not me to be the prophet to the nations. Does that sound like you? You may be saying, I, I, I can't witness. I can't speak in front of people. I can't pray out loud. I, I can't share things openly. I can't go fulfill it. I can't serve. Listen, if you think you're inadequate to be used by God, that's the first indication that you're qualified. Because God is not looking for ultra-talented people. He's not looking for people who think they can do it all. He wants to do it all through people who think they can't. Moses at age 40 said, I can do it. God said, no, go off and be a shepherd for 40 years. At age 80, Moses says, I don't think I can do it. And God said, you're my man. The second fear Moses had to overcome was his own excuses. And then there's a third fear that Moses had to overcome. And that was the wrath of God. Look at verse 
28 back in Hebrews 11. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. Moses went back to Egypt and he told Pharaoh that God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused and so God sent the plagues, the blood and the frogs and the gnats and the insects and all the livestock in Egypt died and there were boils and hail and locusts and darkness. And each time that one of the plagues came, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to let Israel go. In fact, after that ninth plague, the, the plague of darkness, Pharaoh said to Moses, if I see your face again, you'll die. So God came to Moses and He said, I've got one more plague. At midnight, I'm going to pass over the land and I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. And so in Exodus chapter 12, he describes it on the 10th day of the month, each family was to take a one-year-old unblemished male lamb and separate it from the flock. And then on the 14th day at twilight, they were to kill it. And they were to collect the blood in a basin and they were to dip hyssop in the basin and then put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house. And then they were to cook the lamb, roast the lamb, and eat it with their loins girded, their sandals on their feet, their staff in their hand, and they were to eat it fast. It was to be fast food. And then God said, At midnight I will pass over the land and I will strike down the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. But... When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, Moses and Israel could have said, look, the first nine plagues didn't really work, so why should this one? But instead, Hebrews 11.28 says, by faith they applied the blood. And when God saw the blood, He passed over those houses of Israel that had the blood. Yet the Bible tells us there was great mourning, great weeping in Egypt that night because there was a death in every household that didn't have the blood. Now isn't that a vivid picture of the way God deals with all of us? I see three important principles out of this story. Number one, all people face God's judgment. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is what? Death. It's not just talking about physical death. It's talking about eternal death. That's why Ephesians 2.3 says, We were all by nature children of wrath. We've talked today about the joy of being sons of God. What's it like to be a son of wrath? It means you walk around and you've got a bullseye on your back for the judgment of God. That's the way we were apart from Jesus Christ. All people face God's judgment. Secondly, there's only one way of deliverance from God's wrath. 
God said in Exodus 12, 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He didn't say when I see your good works, I will pass over you. When I see your good intentions, I will pass over you. When I see the blood. Blood had to be shed. A lamb had to be substituted. And 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ is our Passover sacrifice. He is the Lamb who died in your place. He is God's only way. And then thirdly, God's way must be applied by faith. If someone said, you know, it's not logical that sprinkling blood on my doorpost will save my oldest son. If someone said, you know, I believe what God says, but I'm kind of preoccupied with some other things right now. I don't think I'm going to get around to that. If someone said, I'll kill the lamb because I'm hungry, but I'm not going to put that blood on my door. I mean, I just painted the house. And what are the neighbors going to think? If somebody said those things, what would happen? Death. Judgment. You see, it wasn't enough to know God's message of good news. It had to be applied. And the same is true of the blood of Christ. Rationalization, mental assent, procrastination won't get it. You must apply the blood of Jesus Christ to your life by faith. What are you fearful of today? Other people? Their disapproval, their threats, their frowns? Maybe you're afraid of your own excuses. I'm inadequate. I can't. Or maybe you're here today and you're still fearful of God's judgment. You're still filled with guilt. Those are the three things Moses overcame by faith. Let me ask you three questions in closing this morning. Question number one. In the day of judgment, is God going to pass over you? See, God is still saying, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Have you accepted God's substitute? Can you say with the hymn writer, I am washed in the blood of the Lamb? Does God see Jesus' blood applied to your life by faith? There is no more important question than that. Second question. What excuses are you making for not following God's call in your life? You see, God is calling you to do something. God is calling you to serve somewhere. God is calling you to lead somebody. And just like Moses, God has an answer 
for every one of those excuses that you come up with. In fact, all those excuses you are making are not really excuses at all. They are qualifications. Because if you don't have excuses, if you don't feel inadequate, then God can't use you. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, what? Then I am strong. It's only in my weakness. It's only in my brokenness. It's only when I understand that I cannot do it myself that God's strength comes into play and He works through us. Your excuses are an indication that you're ready you're qualified to be used by God. Now let me ask you a final question. Who are your heroes? Do you, like the Jews, model yourself after Moses the lawgiver or Moses the grace receiver? Do you admire self-made people who are competent and who are proud and who are all about works? Or do you model yourself after God-made people who are humble and who are all about faith? Who are your heroes? In the 19th century, John Patton left his native Scotland to take the gospel to the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands. As he was getting ready to leave, an elderly friend repeatedly sought to deter him. His echoing argument was, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. Patton records in his autobiography his final reply. He said, Mr. Dixon you are advanced in years and your own prospect is to soon be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Let's join Peter Cameron Scott and John Patton and Moses as people of faith who have no fear. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to stand together and sing in closing today. I'm going to have Nathan come forward as we sing. There may be somebody here.